when you meet a cheese for the first time, or if you're like, I bought this farmer's market cheese or this nice cheese from my cheese shop, I want to like enjoy it to the fullest and get the most out of my investment. You can kind of taste with intention. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, because a really great cheese uh, will take you kind of on a journey, as uh, my friend Madame Fromage likes to say. Um, not every cheese will, but like that's a, a mark of a great cheese is that there's this kind of um, this sort of transformation on your tongue that goes on, uh, and you kind of get these these sort of lingering essence of like what what the cheese is telling you time. <laughs> I would say, call it an aftertaste, but like aftertaste often has a negative connotation. So I try to just figure out a better way to express that. Welcome to another episode of Amuse Bouche, a podcast full of big ideas served in small bites. I'm your host, Kehlani Palmasano, and this week I'm getting an incredible introduction to artisan cheeses with Alexandra Jones. She walked me through everything from a brief history of cheesemaking in the United States to proper ways to taste cheese, like really get the most out of your cheese plate, which come to find out is more involved than just putting the cheese in your mouth. Seriously, Alexandra gave me some solid pointers on how to get all of my senses involved in the process of cheese tasting. This is a really fun episode, which pairs perfectly with a cheese board. So go ahead and grab your bloomiest, saltiest, nuttiest cheeses and all of your favorite accoutrements and enjoy the show. Alexandra Jones is a writer, food educator, and cheesemonger. Over her decade-long career, she's worked alongside small-scale farms, food artisans, and chefs throughout the Philadelphia region. In addition to her work as a writer, she's also one-third of the team behind Collective Creamery, a woman-powered artisan cheese subscription. She also recently published a book called Stuff Every Cheese Lover Should Know, which is perfect for new cheese lovers beginning their journey into the vast world of cheese. For this reason, Alexandra, to me, you will always be Philadelphia's dairy queen. So, Alex, where did your love of cheese begin? Uh, Well, um, I think it came from, you know, one of my earliest memories of eating cheese is like getting a big hunk of bright orange grocery store sharp cheddar and slicing it up as like my after school snack. And I would eat it with Triscuits and then uh, slices of garlicky dill pickles. And that is still one of my favorite snacks today. But um, in terms of maybe more uh, special occasion or artisan cheese, uh, my mom is from Quebec and in her town in Quebec, there is a Swiss cheesemaker. Um, I think is now in his second generation. Like his, his son is actually married to one of my cousins, of which I have oh, wow. many up there. <laughs> and they have just established this creamery and a farm store right over the border uh, from Vermont. And uh, they make Swiss-style cheeses, which includes a ton of raclette. Um, and we would go visit my Canadian family up there. And just everyone there, you know, they're French-Canadian, but they're not actually Swiss, but they just buy tons of cheese. The prices are amazing. Also, like if you're used to seeing American cheese shop prices per pound, you go to like a Quebec uh, cheese shop and you see the prices per kilo. They're like amazing. So you can really stock up. Um, But yeah, they just make made a lot of really great European style cheeses. And for New Year's Eve, one of my aunts would always make raclette, which is this really fun uh, way to enjoy this melted alpine style cheese. So that's probably one of the earliest. Uh, was there a reason that it raclette was for New Year's? It's just like, it's a wintry food. It's hot cheese. Um, I think traditionally it's 
kind of enjoyed in like the ski chalet, um, if you are in Switzerland up in the Alps. Um, and it's just like, it's this, uh, it's this burner, you know, there's a, a couple different ways you can do it. If you've ever been uh, in Philly, for example, to the, um, the, the Christmas market at yes. Love Park, there's that one stand that's just melting these huge half wheels over, you know, baguettes and scraping it off. That's raclette is to scrape. So that's where raclette comes from. Oh. Um, but if you want to do it at home, you can buy a little tiny candle powered burner, or you can buy a grill, which is basically like a central heating element. And everyone gets a little Teflon paddle and they put their cheese on the paddle, stick it under the element. And a minute or two later, it's bubbly and melted. And then you have all these other little goodies like bread and potatoes and stuff that you pour your cheese over. So it's definitely a, I would call it a, not a special occasion food necessarily, but one of those experiential meals, like something like fondue or, um, or hot pot where you're, you're cooking in the moment. Everyone is kind of handling their own little portions and it's a really amazing like winter holiday meal. Although to be frank, you can have it anytime. They even make, um, little grills where you can put your raclette cheese on the the grill outside in the summer. So um, that's fun. Fun campfire idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I only ask because uh, the first time I ever had raclette was actually when I was in Germany and I was dating a German guy and I went over to his house for New Year's with his family. And the tradition was watching this British comedy. It was in black and white called Dinner for One. And then having a raclette dinner. And that was my first time ever experiencing it. And it was so fun because we got the little paddles where you could put your own cheeses. But they would also do like, I don't know, not mix-ins, but kind of like mix-ins, like a little tiny gherkins or like tomato or, um, you know, other vegetables or or with meats and everything. And it was just such a fun um, experience to kind of have. It wasn't, yeah, it's, it's similar to fondue, but everyone's got their own personal little set that they're, they're all kind of going at their own pace. And it's very casual. Um, but yeah, why is raclette one of your formative cheese memories? I mean, I think it probably sticks out because it was unlike any kind of cheese I had ever had before. Um, you know, we would get like brie very occasionally, like quote unquote brie. Um, when I was a kid, again, usually for like Christmas, you would have, you know, the nice cheeses instead of just like the big blocks that you always get, you know, for your sandwiches and burgers and whatnot. Right. Um, and, you know, I remember my aunt, uh, who loves to entertain to even to this day when I visit her, she always like puts out a big spread. Um, uh, she would, she just had, she had her raclette set. She had all of her, you know, little, like you say, little bowls of pickles and, you know, crudite and, um, like little sausages that you can grill oh, yeah, on the top yeah. of the grill and stuff like that. And I, I mean, I can, I'm remembering it. I have a clear image in my mind. I feel like I sometimes don't remember stuff that happened to me. Like, I'm like, I couldn't tell you when, you know, this memory happened, but like that one is very clear. Uh, <laughs> probably because I was a kid and, you know, just, it was, it was the holidays and, um, and also it was like so good. It was, it was something like we didn't have a set like that. I now own two personally oh, wow. <laughs> as an adult, <laughs> but we didn't like have our own. We didn't do that at home. So it was a very special thing for me. Oh, that's so nice. So, you know, it sounds like you had a really great introduction to cheese uh, as a child, probably more like a more immersive experience than a lot of kids in the United States who grew up on craft singles like myself. I think the fanciest it ever got was um, the like, uh, what's the one in Vermont that has like the big store, Colbert or Oh, Cabot? Cabot. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> shows how much I know about cheese. Uh, but Cabot is great. I still enjoy uh, like a nice block of Cabot cheese. So throughout your journey, kind of walk us through it. You enjoyed cheese as a kid. When did you um, start working with cheese? Sure. So I went to school for tuba performance, which is why uh, a few years after graduation, I was working at Trader Joe's. And uh, that was actually my first job in Philly uh, in, gosh, 2008. Yeah, oh, wow. 2008. Um, and, you know, I actually grew up in California. So I knew Trader Joe's really well. And I kind of like sold myself as like, oh, yeah, I love the products, the big chocolate bars. That's kind of like what, at least at the time, what you had to do to like, not just be dismissed as some rando, you know, because yeah. they get a lot of randos trying to work there. Anyway, um, I started working there. And that was just like my job, figuring out what I'm doing with my life kind of thing. Um, and you can at Trader Joe's, at least the way it was when I worked there, everyone is like, you know, working up to 40 hours a week. But um you know, you have managers who actually work more than that. And then you have the, what they call the part-timers. Like that's what I was, even though I, right. you know, I work like 35 hours a week, whatever. And uh, you could kind of graduate to being a section leader. So like you can order all of the soy milks. Like I did that for a while <laughs> or uh, <laughs> order all of the produce, which is like a big job, you know? Um, and I definitely was, I guess, interested in cheese just like as for eating, you know, and, um, I had the opportunity to become the cheese section leader, you know, merchandising the cheese and like setting up samples and like doing little tastings for the staff. And we got a bunch of new, you know, holiday cheeses in and it wasn't quite, it's not like being a real cheesemonger just because they don't have an actual cheese counter. You're not like cutting any of the product. You're not like selling it directly. Oh yeah. Um, but that was kind of my first way of working with cheese. And then after a couple years there, I was like ready to do something different. And I got a job um, helping to run a CSA program uh, here in Philly that um, aggregated produce from all these local farms. So they, they would have vegetables and fruit in their CSA shares, but they were unique in that they would also have eggs and yogurt and cheese. Like you could pick from a dairy option basically. Um, so there were all these, you know, different things you could pick and there was always a cheese in, in each week. And the people who had run the CSA before me were both vegan. And so the cheese options on offer were like not the, I would not say the most, um, most artisanal or, or maybe like the most unique or interesting that okay. the region yeah. had to offer. And again, this was in like the 2010s, early 2010s, so like 10 years ago. Um, and Pennsylvania's, you know, artisan cheese scene is relatively young. Like the, the two makers that I can think of, handful of makers that I can think of, who were doing this in like the early 2000s, it's very small. So most of them are five, 10, 15 years old. Uh, just those businesses are like really new, even if they were maybe milking cows for several generations as a dairy farm, they've only been making cheese for like 10, 15, 20 years. So there was a lot of like Amish cheddars with like mix-ins, which again, has a place, tastes <laughs> yeah. great, but isn't always the most interesting thing. So I made a point to bring in some kind of more interesting cheeses that, you know, folks who were making, you know, doing handmade cheeses, um, you know, cave aged, uh, really, uh, you know, taking those inspiration from European styles and kind of making them their own or making America, what we call American originals that don't have a direct European analog. Um, and started bringing more of those in. And I, I developed connections with those producers, 
uh, working there. And then I, I moved on to another, actually an all local food stand that doesn't exist anymore, but we had an all local cheese case that was, uh, exclusively cheeses from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. Oh, wow. And we had something like 50 cheeses from 30 something makers or something like that. And, uh, that was really cool. Like, you know, that was my first time being a real cheesemonger. I was also still the buyer. I would sell that cheese to like hotels and restaurants as well. Um, and that is really how I learned a lot about how, how those businesses operate. Um, and kind of what, you know, what the needs of those producers were and what was special about those kinds of products. Oh yeah. It sounds like you were getting familiar too with like with the region and what the region is offering, but also like why are some of these artisan cheesemakers, why have they only been around for like 10, 15 years when we have a really long dairy history? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So Pennsylvania and the Northeast in general has um, you know, a really long, as long, as long as there's a history of, you know, what we call the United States now, um, it pretty much stretches that back that far. So the first, uh, colonizers who came over to what would become new England, the mid Atlantic, uh, they were from dairying regions of England and they brought dairy animals, sheep and cows for the most part. And they also brought cheese making methods. And because, you know, three, 400 years ago, you did not have fridges, the main focus was not selling fluid milk in jugs to the store like we do today, uh, but turning that into cheese and butter that could be much more um, long-lasting, perishable, sturdy, could be shipped, etc. Right. Um, and again, this is the very abbreviated form of the story. But so, so Pennsylvania has had dairy farms for hundreds of years, and there are some that stretch back, you know, several generations. Um, you know that are that are still in operation today, maybe not in the same way they were then, but are doing that now. Um, but zooming out a little bit, a big reason that the American artisan cheese movement is relatively young, like maybe only about 40 years old, um, is because, you know, we did have a lot of regional cheese making, uh, until, you know, mid century, mid 20th century, when like all the rest of agriculture, um, dairy really scaled up and industrialized, uh, so, you know, you get this kind of flattening. This also happened in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, that you get this flattening of what is being offered to more of those commodity type cheeses that we're familiar with from the store that, that, that a lot of people grew up eating just because that's, they didn't know anything else. Right. Uh, and then anything that was more interesting or had that sort of um, deeper provenance was like imported from Europe and, and kind of this specialty product. Um, right. So as we get into the 70s, like back to the land, interest in organic gardening, farming, things like that, there are some small scale producers, many of them working with goats. For example, there's a whole group of uh, women cheesemakers actually called the goat ladies um, who were some of the earliest to sort of make these European style cheeses in America at a, uh, you know, starting at a small scale, raising animals on pasture, using these traditional techniques to, to create something really unique and flavorful and different than what was sold at the grocery store. Uh, and that movement kind of turned into the American artisan cheese movement nationwide. And now there are, there are hundreds of cheesemakers, you know, on that small, working on that smaller or more um, sort of personal scale in the U S and Pennsylvania is one of those States where, you know, there are still a lot of family dairy farms that are just making milk and selling it to the co-op, but a lot of them have had to say because of issues in the dairy industry, and that's a, a complicated 
issue, so I don't want to go too far into it. But basically, often the price that the producers are paid is below what it costs to like milk the cows, feed them, actually produce the milk. So a lot of them have had to say like, hey, like, we got to do something different. We can't keep selling to this co-op that's giving us this like sad paycheck. Um, and you know, we're gonna have to sell our farm. We're going to have to, you know, sell the land, whatever. Uh, so, um, some of them, you know, maybe still sell a little bit to their co-op, but they, they were like, we're going to do what we call value added processing. We're going to add value to our milk by turning it into cheese. Uh-huh. Something that lasts longer that they can put, you know, the farm can put their own name on, like, mm-hmm. There's not like a clover farm. So it's not like one farm or like, you know, <laughs> right. um, all the, all that just gets bundled together and like one, you know, nameless, one nameless farm makes, uh, you know, the milk that goes into your milk jug. But when it's cheese and maybe you're selling it at a farmer's market or to a distributor who's selling it to restaurants or directly to restaurants, you get that money. Like that money comes to you. You get to charge more because you've added value to the product. It's less perishable. Um, it's more unique and like your name is on it. So that is something that some of, especially the cow dairies in the region have done. And otherwise we also just like, we're an agricultural state. Like I think agriculture is the largest, if not the second largest industry, um, in Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. Part of the reason for that is like also South Jersey where you are, you know, agricultural land that is, is good for that. We are the garden state. That, that is why. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it it sounds like there's, so there's these like two camps that have cheese in America. It's like these artisan cheese makers that are making these like really unique products, some of them being done by hand. And then there is, like you said, the industrialized, kind of mass production of cheese. Maybe there's people in between, but you know, when anything becomes industrialized, it then becomes a strain on resources. There's like um, climate issues that are also involved. Like what are some of the challenges in the cheese world that, you know, cheese buyers should know about? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great point. It is a generalization to just say that there are the two camps because yeah, for example, like, well, maybe it's a spectrum yeah. and on one end you have artisan cheese makers. And then on the other hand, you have like craft singles. For sure. Well, craft singles, <laughs> yeah. not technically cheese. They are legally defined as not cheese, which is why they have to be called like processed cheese product really? or whatever. So, you know, so what percentage of cheese does it have to be in order to be cheese? It's literally like defined in us, like uh, fed the federal code of regulations from the FDA, like defines, you know, how much fat, how much protein, how much moisture you have to have Ah. to call something a cheddar, for example. Right. Um, And a processed cheese food or a processed cheese product like has, has these certain specs and cheese is an ingredient, but it is, it is not technically cheese. So, so yeah, (laughs) just cheese is an ingredient. Little distinction there. Um, Side note. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talking about, uh, about scale, I guess, um, you know, I've been learning, I've been working with um, some Wisconsin, uh, cheese producer uh, organizations, and I've learned a lot about their cheese making. Um, they just kind of started at like this bigger scale. Like they mostly have what they would call a cheese factory, um, which sounds big and scary and industrial, but is actually just kind of like a a slightly larger scale producer, like the ones I'm referring to, these small scale artisans, right? Because of of the system that they started with in, you know, the 1800s, when white folks got to Wisconsin and started, you know, doing dairy. Um, So like, there, they were always pooling milk from several farms and like doing that cooperative system like Cabot. 
Um, but that's kind of how they started. So they just have a slightly different scale. 95% of their milk gets turned into cheese, which is, makes them really unique. So they're a very cheese um, focused state. Like their whole dairy right. industry kind of revolves around cheese in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, it's again, like it's just not totally black and white. I just want to make that distinction because there are um, plenty of really great uh, artisan cheesemakers in Wisconsin oh, totally. who do produce these just like larger quantities. So, so again, there's lots of shades of gray there. Um, overall, you know, the, we talk a lot about meat with climate. Um, yes. That has been dominating the discussion lately. And there have been a lot of discussions about, um, you know, the impact of, of eating meat and, and raising animals on, on climate. And, it can feel really confusing because depending on which expert you're talking to and like what their interests might be or what research they're using, you know, it's, oh, it's not that much of a percentage. It's actually transportation and like these big, you know, 50 corporations that are doing all the polluting. And then in other ways, it's like, well, like this is still really significant and we really need to, to tone it down, <laughs> our right. meat consumption. Um, and dairy is kind of lumped in with that, but I feel like it's not really talked about with a lot of like as, as its own thing. Um, and something that, you know, folks who are advocating for, for a sustainable version, you know, quote unquote, sustainable version of animal agriculture, you know, point out that ruminants have a really important place in, in our diets and in, in ecological uh, systems. Um, you know, they can take grass, which, you know, we can't eat. Uh, and you can't, you know, that grows on land that you can't grow vegetables or row right. crops on, for example. Yeah. Uh, and they turn that into, into food that we can eat, um, which is a really amazing thing. And as they do that, they are fertilizing the soil. Um, you know, they need, they need sun and rain and then like some animals to graze and you have, you know, rotate, rotate your, uh, your grazing, like bring the animals, you know, have them eat all the grass here, take them to another field the next week. Uh, and then eventually come back around. And by the time you get to the beginning, that grass is all good for them again. Um, mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's something that humans have done for thousands of years. And, for me, it's one of the things that I would like to see. I would like us to try and like find a solution that includes um, those human-animal relationships that you know sustained people for for centuries and millennia. Um, not only because they can be like really uh, sustainable, closed ecological systems, and and you know utilize land for food that we can't, but because they are you know important to like many different cultures traditions. Oh, uh, however, you know a lot of the um, the animal agriculture that is done, whether it's for meat uh, or for dairy, is like not really like that, and there are questions about whether that, uh, you know, carbon capture from grasslands is enough to mitigate climate. And again, it's, it shouldn't be the only thing that we're doing in terms of climate, but that's just like a little bit of background on, on what we're talking about when we talk about oh, yeah, eating cheese sustainably. Yeah. It's just like some things for, for people to understand and maybe consider the next time that they build a cheese board since they are so huge right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, thinking about consumer choices, zooming in on, on people's kitchens. Um, you know, I would say that smaller is better and that comes in a couple different forms. So like in terms of the food miles that the food has to travel, um, you know, if you are getting something from a local producer who's driving an hour every week to come to the farmer's market or maybe sell to some co-ops in your area, um, 
you know, that is different than stuff getting trucked across the country. Uh, so, or, you know, shipped, uh, shipped over from Europe. Right. Um, so I think local is, uh, one way that you can kind of, you know, eat more intentionally when you're, when you're buying your cheese. Um, we have in the Philly area, tons of amazing cheesemakers. I actually work with the Pennsylvania cheese guild. Um, we're about to have a new website that is going to make it really easy for folks to find our member cheesemakers. But, um, especially in Chester County, the area just West of Philly, um, there's a good, nice concentration of artisan makers. And a lot of them either sell their products to stores here or come in for weekend farmers markets. So hit up your farmers market, if you're like surprised at some of the prices you see, um, you know, it's the same thing as like, you know, you're going to pay what $2 for a PBR pounder or whatever at your corner bar. But right. if you go to a gastro pub, you're going to pay like seven or $8 for a pint of like your hazy IPA or whatever. Uh, it's a, it's a food with a different kind of provenance made on a different scale, um, with different techniques, often by like a single family or even a single person. Um, and the costs, you know, um, when we get cheap food and drink, like those costs might not be borne by us and our wallets, but they are borne elsewhere in supply chain. We'll put it mm-hmm. that way. Right. Um, so because these are smaller producers who don't have some of those economies of scale, and also because they are, um, you know, you making their product and distributing it in a way that is a little more, um, Maybe, maybe put put passes on fewer of those externalities elsewhere in the supply chain and passes it to the consumer. Um, you might see some higher prices and don't freak out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say like buy a piece of cheese. Like, like I think, I'm not sure if we're allowed to have sampling again yet, but that was one real bummer with COVID is that cheese counters oh, right. and definitely farmer's markets. A lot of them adopted no sampling policies. And that is really how you sell cheese. Like, I can yeah. tell you how great a cheese is all day, but um, but when, when someone actually it, gets yeah exactly, yeah. then they can imagine what you mean by the tasting notes. Because sometimes when we talk about the taste, the way things taste, we're using words that are like oh nutty. This is salty. This has a gritty kind of texture to it, or this one is soft and smooth and has like little citrus notes and everything. That's really hard for people to kind of like <laughs> understand. They might have an idea of maybe what they could try that cheese with, but they're not going to really get it until they try. Um, One of my favorite ways, and I don't know how many other grocery stores do this, but the Whole Foods uh, in like the Fairmount neighborhood used to do um, like the cheese ends. So they would be making, they'd be cutting cheese from, I guess, a bigger wheel into smaller quantities for people to just pick up and buy. But then they would get to the end of the cheese and it'd be these like discarded, like little bits of cheese so that you're not committing to like a full you know, wedge, um, but you get like maybe for three or four dollars, you get maybe a couple of bites. So we were making these like <laughs> hacked up like cheese boards, but they were really, really nice because it was a great way to be introduced to all of these other cheeses. And, then, and then now, mind you, I don't know like what Whole Foods ch- selection of cheeses are like compared to what you would find at a uh, at a you know farmer's market or with a cheese share like collective creamery but it it was kind of like a good foot in the door to have an idea of styles of cheese at least because then then we get into the styles of cheese um like what should cheese lovers be looking for like when they're buying different cheeses like if i'm going to build a board what varieties should i be like looking at (laughs) 
Sure. Well, yeah, that's that's a great tip. Finding those cheese ends at a cheese shop is is a great way to broaden your horizons with a minimal investment. So definitely try that. Um, I would say generally you want to have some contrast. You don't want to buy like uh, five blue cheeses. I mean, you can like you could absolutely do a blue cheese themed cheese tasting. Uh, if or you know a, a, several different kinds of goudas at all different ages, more of like a vertical tasting or a tasting of a, of one style in particular, but. In general, you want to have some variation um, just to give yourself your, give yourself that mix. So, you know, a fresh cheese like a Chev or a Fromage Blanc, um, a Bloomy Ryan cheese like a Brie style or um, a Lactic Bloomy. These are kind of a cousin of Brie that has that chalky center. A lot of French style goat cheeses are Lactic Bloomies like Valence or a little Crottin, something like that. Um and then maybe a washed rind, those like funky, stinky, um, you know, typically semi-soft uh, to soft cheeses like raclette or like Taleggio is another example. Um, those can be really lovely and they often smell really stinky and pungent. Uh, so people are like turned off. But when you actually eat them, their flavor is like really mild and buttery and savory. Mm. Um, then you want to get maybe some aged cheese. Well, it could be a blue that's that more of that punchy and like creamy crumbly quality. Um, and then you get into the world of aged cheeses of like firm, you know, goudas, alpine styles, uh, cheddars, um, you know, other, other cooked and pressed cheeses. Uh, it's kind of a technical term. It just means that there's lots of moisture pushed out of the curds, uh, as the cheese is being made. So they're going to be firmer and drier. So like, uh, Manchego, for example, is, is one, um, those firm cheeses that we think of. Uh, so, think about texture, like you've got like soft and semi-soft and hard. You've also got um, variations in style, like I just kind of recapped. And then also like in flavor, like intensity is, is one way we think about that. So like a chev is very light and citrusy and, and creamy and, you know, soft. And then you've got a blue that's like really pungent and like brawny and, you know, um, really on the opposite side of the spectrum. So you want to just give yourself those differences in flavor and texture. Um, and, you know, you can, like I said, put some constraints on that. You can try a bunch of different cheddars and see how they're different, which is something that's really fun to do. You can focus on a region. You can say, like, I want to try, um, you know, all French cheeses today and then go to De Bruno Brothers or wherever you're buying your cheese, you know, at, at, if it's at a cheese shop, um, and try those. If you are shopping at the farmer's market, most makers make a really wide variety of options. So they'll make some fresh stuff, some bloomy stuff, some aged stuff, some blue cheeses, you know, a cheddar, like it's all, there's several varieties from one producer. You can tell that I, I used to work at a farmer's market oh, selling definitely. cheese for like several years. So I'm like, yes, go to your farmer's market. Yeah, that's why money. you're the perfect person to talk to about this. <laughs> um, and, and usually, you know, if you can taste their stuff, then you know if you like it or not, you know, you know, once you get that taste, you're like, oh, this will be great with the strawberries I just bought. Or like, I can put this on pizza and that'll be really awesome. Or I can, you know, eat this with this jam that I have at home. Um, so once you taste, you can kind of get an idea of how to pair or use those cheeses when you get them home. And you can also ask that person um, or, or your cheesemonger if you're at a cheese shop, like, do not be afraid to, you know, ask them questions and, and get information from them about what they like to pair or suggestions that they have. So you can grab like maybe a variety of three cheeses from your local, you know, friendly local cheese vendor or, um, or from a, a, a cheese shop where you're probably going to have a much wider selection, um, domestic as well as local. Um, De Bruno's doesn't carry a ton of local cheeses, but they do have 
Uh, they have a lot of great imports and they have a good selection of like, um, uh, you know, American artisan cheeses from elsewhere in the country too, which, which are some really great stuff you made all over the place. Oh, uh, so I would suggest that if you're thinking, again, thinking about sustainability, I would go for local. I would also go for smaller animals. Um, meaning like the small ruminants, your goats and your sheep. Um, there is some carbon footprint from them or, you know, that, that methane that we're always worried about the cow burps. Um, but it's smaller because they're smaller animals. They also give less milk. So, you know, that's part of why, at least in this country, they just, um, are a smaller percentage of what we do because we're so cow heavy. Yeah. Um, so they can, they can be either a little harder to find or a little bit more expensive because it does require more milk to make the same amount of cheese. And like sheep, for example, are like really hard. They're, they like want to die kind of thing. They get a lot of problems. <laughs> they're kind of harder to raise uh, than, than, you know, goats, for example. Um, so, so that, those are, those are a couple of tips and the book includes a lot of, you know, sort of cheese buying guides, cheese board building guides. So there's a lot more information there too. Oh, that's wonderful. And, you know, it, when we were talking about um, coming on this podcast and talking about cheese and everything, you had talked, you had mentioned the proper way to taste cheese, which is something that I never considered because I thought that the proper way would just be to like stick it in your mouth and, and eat it. But what what are some tasting tips uh, if you have any? Sure. So, you know, if you've ever been to a wine tasting, you see people swirling in their glass. You see them sticking their nose in the glass. You might be seeing them doing like that little. I think eighty-five percent of the know? people just do it because they saw other people do it, and they really don't know why they're doing it. But right. I, I understand there's reasons. There's like, oh, where you're swirling it, it's kind of like the aeration, you know, getting the wine to quote unquote breathe. Does right. cheese breathe? Do you need to breathe yeah. the cheese? I mean, no, it does not breathe. <laughs> I mean, wine doesn't breathe either. But but oxygen, right. oxygen yes. is a thing. So so. Basically, the, the right way to taste cheese, quote unquote, and like, yes, sticking it in your mouth is also like totally valid. That's fine. <laughs> um, but but to kind of, I don't want to say evaluate, because that also sounds very dry. It's what they call it in like judging cheese competition. Oh, right. um, but when you meet a cheese for the first time, or if you're like, I bought this farmer's market cheese or this nice cheese from my cheese shop, I want to like enjoy it to the fullest and get the most out of my investment you can kind of taste with intention. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, the first step is actually before you're even like eating, take it out of the fridge and open it up out of its paper. If you have a cheese dome, that is a great tool to use for this. Just like pop it in the cheese dome, Ooh. but take it out on room at room temp, give it at least an hour, like maybe even a little bit more if it's, if it's cold in your space. I actually, I had, I did a virtual tasting yesterday and I brought all my cheese out like two hours beforehand and it was still like cold because it was so cold <laughs> yesterday. Right. Um, and let it breathe, like let it relax. That is the term. What that really means is it's going to come up to room temperature. Uh, because if you eat that cheese straight out of the fridge, even if it's like super punchy and flavorful, you're not going to get a lot of that because cold mutes those flavors. It mutes what we can taste and smell. Oh. And those are the two ways that we really experience flavor. Uh, so that's really important. And then just opening it up to kind of like let it air out a little bit is, is another good suggestion for having it taste the best uh, as possible when you actually eat it. Um, 
And then once it's up to room temp, you know, you can put it out on a board with some pairings and, and, you know, there's no right answer with pairing. There are a lot of guidelines of the kinds of things that you want to pair, you know, mongers or, you know, cheese sellers can all make recommendations about that. I write a ton of pairing guides for cheese grotto. You can check that out. Um, you know, online, there's a ton of, of cheese pairing ideas. There are some great, um, the immortal milk Instagram account, Alicia Norris Jones. She's a, a Chicago based cheesemonger. I believe she has a lot of really fun and interesting pairing ideas. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can take inspiration from that, um, you know, bring those together. But when you actually taste your cheese, you want to use, use your senses to, 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 to evaluate it. We're not really going to use hearing at this stage, although um, F and yours do that when they are, uh, evaluating cheese in the cave, but we're going to oh, start really? with touch. You're going to cut yourself <laughs> yeah. a little piece of cheese and then, you know, just kind of, kind of touch it a little bit. Just be like, am I s- soft and squishy? Am I firm and crumbly? Does it break apart? Is it, you know, bouncy? Does it kind of bounce back? Like what is the texture? So you can kind of see from, from soft to firm, like where it lies in the texture. You can also look at your cheese and just say like, okay, it's got this soft white rind and this kind of golden paste with this creamy area. Like if you had, you know, a really nice bloomy rind cheese, that's what that would look like. Uh, And the more you taste, the more you can, you know, you'll know if you see that white rind and like gooey cream line on a cheese, you kind of know what it's going to taste like a little like in the in the ballpark of what it's going to taste like before you try it, the more experience you get with the style, then you're going to smell it. Uh, and you always want to smell both the rind and the paste because the rind will have some of its own unique aromas um, that the cheesemaker worked really hard to cultivate and kind of see what's going on there, like what you smell. Uh, also, that tunes in our nose for for tasting because the nose is really involved in taste. Um, I learned this term working on a, a project recently. So there's orthonasal uh, olfaction, which means going straight into your nose. So when you smell something, that's orthonasal olfaction. When you are tasting, when you put some food in your mouth and are chewing it up and, and experiencing flavor, you are getting a lot of that flavor from retronasal olfaction, which is, you know, coming from inside your mouth and traveling up through your sinus, like nasal cavity oh, into your nose. That makes so much sense. That's why yeah. they say that the two are so to- closely uh, tied together. Yeah, so the tongue only gives us the five basic tastes. So your salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami, which, you know, that's five tastes, uh, not super multidimensional. But then uh, the nose brings in like that full spectrum of flavor. So you want to smell first, kind of like observe what you're smelling. And if if you're the kind of person who will take notes and likes to take notes, like having a little cheese tasting notebook to keep track of what you're tasting, you know, where it came from, your observations, you know, what you thought about it is a great idea. Uh, then finally you put it on your tongue, give it just a second to like warm up a little bit, uh, and soften. Then you're going to chew it all up, get it all over your mouth, enjoy eating it. And as that is happening, really pay attention to what is going on in your mouth. Like what are, what are you observing? Like, does the cheese, what does it taste like? And does it change at all as you are, you know, chewing and swallowing and eating that cheese? Um, because a really great cheese uh, will take you kind of on a journey, as uh, my friend Madame Fromage likes to say. <laughs> right. um, not every cheese will, but like that's a, a mark of a great cheese is that there's this kind of um, this sort of transformation on your tongue that goes on uh, sometimes. Like you'll, you'll first maybe maybe at first it tastes really savory, and then by the end it's more fruity or like caramelly and toasty and nutty, something like that. And then finally you swallow. And you take a, a sort of like reflective breath. So you're going to keep your mouth closed and then blow out through your nose. 
And in doing so, you're doing one last little bit of that retronasal olfaction. Uh, and you kind of get these, these sort of lingering essence of like what, what the cheese is telling you one last time. <laughs> I would say, call it an aftertaste, but like aftertaste often has a negative connotation. So I try to <laughs> right, just right. figure out a better way to express that. And, and again, it's like, it's like doing the swirling, you're, you're observing, you know, with the wine, you're observing, you know, the alcohol content and the sugar content by how it falls down the glass and you're helping to mix in that air and then you're smelling it, you're tuning in your senses and then finally you're tasting it and enjoying it. And so that's just kind of the, the way to not just stuff things in your mouth, which again, I do that a lot too. Um, but when, <laughs> when you're trying a new cheese, especially, and you really want to enjoy it and maybe observe it and eat with a little more intention and presence, like that is how I recommend meeting a new, you know, artisan cheese. That is, that's definitely the way you're supposed to like eat a cheese that you have invested in. Like invest that time. If you're going to have some really nice cheese, go all out, have a good time with it. Like turn it into a special occasion. Like, you know, like you have memories of raclette and create more cheese memories. I love it. <laughs> um, do you have like a favorite cheese season? Um you know, because it seems like, like as the seasons progress, so do the like the cheeses kind of match. Like, yeah, in summertime, the cheeses seem so like floral. You get the like kind of like flower on the rind, and then in the winter time, it's more heartier, dense. You know, cheeses that yeah are go great with like your holiday festivities and everything. Do you have a favorite season? Well, yeah, cheese is very seasonal. And part of that is just like when it's a million degrees, like maybe you don't want to eat Rush Creek Reserve. <laughs> Although some <laughs> right. people want to eat Rush Creek Reserve all year round. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe you are going to pick, you know, a nice, a nice light, you know, bloomy goat cheese to go with some rosé to eat, you know, outside on your deck or something. Um, so part of that is just like, what, what do we prefer at different times? Uh, and the other seasonal seasonality factor, just to give you guys a little more context is, that cheese does change with the seasons. If you're if you're working with a grass-based, you know, pasture-based dairy, especially, they're going to be eating dry hay in the wintertime. And that uh, means that the moisture percentage of their milk is going to go down a bit and the fat percentage is going to be a little bit higher. Like that ratio oh. is going to be higher. Um, and you'll also see like whiter cheese, like cow's milk has a bit of a, has beta carotene in it, which gives it a sort of a golden color. You really see that in the spring, summer, and early fall when the cows are still eating grass. Um, Cause that fresh grass gives them beta carotene, but in the winter you see less of that. And so the milk is a little bit whiter in addition to being a little bit richer. Uh, so there are certain styles, like for example, in Alpine cheese making, they make these little, very high fat, um, you know, spruce wrapped cheeses. And in the summertime, they make these big, you know, um, Alpine style wheels. If you think, uh, if you're a fan of, of um, Upland's cheese, you know, Pleasant Ridge Reserve in the summertime, Rush Creek Reserve in the win fall and winter. Um, that's kind of that that sort of duality. Um, but the other thing that changes in addition to what the cows are eating or the animals are eating is that where they are in their lactation cycle and sort of the time of year will also change. So, uh, fat and protein go up in the spring. So if you imagine that the animal is feeding its baby, like the mom is like her, her body is going to naturally boost those nutrients that the new baby calf really needs to like establish itself. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, typically happens in the spring. So, 
depending on where you are, there might not be a lot of fresh grass for the animals to eat. Once they are able to eat fresh grass, um, gradually those numbers decline. Um, so sometimes in the summertime, a seasonal cheesemaker needs to adjust her recipe or adjust the style of cheese that she makes if she's not getting quite as much fat for some of those like lush styles. Um, but then right before, uh, right in the fall before the winter, there will be a little uptick in those components and that fat and protein. It's kind of like giving the baby one last little little bit of those extra nutrients before uh, the winter comes and it is weaned. And um, that is often, you know, one of the best times of year for seasonal cheese, like fall cheeses. So the animals are still on grass. They're still getting some of those, those meadow flavors um, that really can express the terroir of, of that uh, region. And then they're also, you know, having these extra rich, extra um, components in their milk, which makes for extra rich cheese. So fall is a great time to eat cheese. It's also the time that we kind of turn to cheese as a food, like culturally, like that's the craziest time of the year for cheesemakers and cheesemongers, you know, all the way through the holidays. Um, but honestly, like there's never, the great thing about cheese is that because, you know, especially long age styles, they can age for, you know, a sort of almost um, indefinite period of time or, or you have some flexibility of when you can take them out of the cave. Like cheese is, cheese is seasonal, but it's also like always there. Like there's fresh cheeses in the spring that are made with, you know, new spring milk and you really get to taste the quality and the, the freshness of the milk in that. Then there's ones that you pull out of the cave from last year at that time that, uh, you know, are going to be aged and have a whole different characteristic. So it's kind of like you can kind of be in the present paying attention to what's going on uh, with the styles that are fresh or maybe take only a few weeks or a few months to mature. And then you've got the ones that have been in the cave for six months or a year or two years. And so you can kind of, um, it's almost like with vintages of wine, like you're, you're getting to enjoy what's happening with the cows right now, but then also like, what did the cheesemaker do two years ago to preserve what was happening with the cows at that moment? Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on to Amuse-Bouche and sharing all of your expertise with us. I am so excited to get out to my local farmer's market and try out some new cheeses. If you're interested in learning more, get Alexandra's book, Stuff Every Cheese Lover Should Know, available everywhere where books are sold. You can find more of Alexandra's work on her website, alexandrajones.net, and be sure to give her a follow on social media. She's at A Rock Jones Town on both Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Amuse Bouche on social media at Amuse Bouche Pod, and be sure to subscribe to the Amuse Bouche newsletter on Substack. Every week, you'll find more food stories, recipes, and gardening updates. It's a free newsletter at the moment, but I do accept tips, so consider helping a sister out by throwing her a few bucks a month. You can also support me by engaging with the show and following me at Kaylani Says on Instagram and Twitter. Amuse Bouche is hosted by yours truly, Kehlani Palmasano. The music at the beginning and the end of this podcast is by the Great North Sound Society, and the song is called South Street Strut. A little nod to my Philly folks out there. At the moment, I'm working as a one-woman band, producing, editing, and bringing these amazing food stories to your ears. So if you're liking what you're listening to, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.